podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hi there, Paul Dennett here. Welcome to another mini pod from Cricket Unfiltered. Today's story is one of my favorites. Hopefully it's one that you haven't heard before and hopefully you enjoy it. I want to take you right back to the 23rd of October, 1928. Don Bradman, aged 20, is about to take a long train journey starting from Melbourne, stopping a night off at home in Sydney and then heading up to Brisbane. I like to imagine what he would have looked like as he arrived at the train station accompanied by some other cricketers. He wasn't tall but he was pretty athletic. He would have been impeccably dressed and I reckon he would have had a rather serious expression on his face. None of the other passengers would have given him a second glance because he was not famous, but he was about to become so. As he settled in for the long journey, he would have had no inkling that his days of being able to travel in public without being recognised were rapidly coming to an end. But far from fame on his mind at that time, I think that inside, beneath his calm exterior, he would have been seething because he had just squandered a golden opportunity and potentially an opportunity of a lifetime. He'd been in Melbourne to take part in the first big match of the 1928-29 cricket season that had been played on the Melbourne cricket ground. These days, we would call this game Australia versus Australia A. They were less sentimental back in the 1920s and it was just called Australia versus the rest. Midway through the previous summer, Bradman, aged 19, had broken into the New South Wales side for the first time, and he'd performed pretty well for the rest of that season, and on the strength of this was chosen in the rest, and the rest were basically people who were probably not expected to figure in the test matches that summer, but who definitely had a chance of doing so. But with the eyes of the nation and of the selectors on him, Bradman had failed. He'd only scored 14 in the first innings and 5 in the second. He could scarcely have chosen a worse time to fail because right at that moment on the other side of the country, the England cricket team were arriving ready to defend the Ashes that they'd won in England in 1926. The first test was a little over five weeks away and Australia was going gaga for the Ashes. Now the Ashes these days are obviously very big, but for Australia in the 1920s and 30s, they were absolutely huge. Australia was a tiny forgotten nation at the bottom of the world. England was still the world's superpower with their massive empire. And when Australia got an opportunity to play England in the sport that England had invented, Australians felt that they had a chance to pop their head above the parapet and make a little bit of a splash in world affairs. But there were cricketing reasons as well. It had been four long years since there had been any test cricket in Australia at all. Back in those days, touring sides didn't come that often. So the nation was at fever pitch for cricket. To give you an example, back on the 10th of September, that is to say 81 days before the first test was due to start, in the Sydney Daily Telegraph, they ran a competition to see if you could name the 12 players who'd be chosen in Australia's first test team. They then proceeded to repeat this every single day for the next 81 days, and it seemed as though the entire state just about sent in an entry. 
but it's fair to say that at this juncture, as Bradman is embarking on his train journey, very few of the entries would have had the name Donald George Bradman, or D.G. Bradman. One small positive that Bradman might have noted was that if he did have a copy of the local newspaper, The Age from Melbourne, he would have seen that on the scorecard they'd written his dismissal in the second innings as D.G. Bradman, Bold Oxenham, 5. And the positive here was that up until a couple of days before, they'd been calling him D.J. Bradman. That's what an unknown he was. But this, of course, would have been cold comfort for the highly ambitious young man. Bradman knew himself just how good he was. And he was desperate to prove it to everybody and to make it into that first test team. He would have had a lot of time to think over the coming days on his long rail journey. Railway journeys back then weren't all that pleasant. There was no air conditioning. And bizarrely, every state in Australia had a different size gauge, different, different width of track. So when you got to the border, you had to get out and change on a different train, often stay overnight. So it was going to be a lengthy journey, 2,100 kilometres 1,300 miles that he was going to have to endure over the, f- the following days. So he would have had plenty of time to consider that he was going to have just three opportunities to show what he could do to the country before the first test match. First up, there's going to be the Sheffield Shield game that he was heading to Brisbane for, the first of the season for New South Wales against Queensland. Then he'd be back to Sydney to play for New South Wales against England. And then finally, if selected at the SCG, he'd also get to play for an Australian eleven against England. And then the first test team would be chosen. So three crucial matches loomed. And this is the story of those three matches. The city of Brisbane has changed a lot over the last nine decades. Back in 1928, its population was only about a quarter of a million. A tenth the size of what it is today and roughly the size of what Hobart is today. To give you an example of where it stood in the pecking order, Brisbane had never, ever hosted a test match. Adelaide, by contrast, had been hosting test cricket for 44 years. But the city of Brisbane was excited because what they were referring to as the biggest sporting event in Queensland history was going to take place soon because the first test of the summer was going to be in Brisbane at the Brisbane Exhibition Ground. Before that, though, the Exhibition Ground was hosting the first Sheffield Shield match of the season against New South Wales. Queensland batted first and made 324. In reply, New South Wales did not fare especially well. And this failure for New South Wales was enjoyed thoroughly throughout Queensland. The morning bulletin of Rockhampton gleefully led with Sheffield Shield, dramatic collapse, Welshman wilt. The scores from New South Wales make for interesting reading. Putting Bradman to one side for a minute, Archie Jackson and Alan Kippax did okay. Jackson made 50 and Kippax 47, but the rest, 1, 4, 5, 2, 0, 0, 0, and naught not out. And Bradman, well, he made 131, more than every other batsman put together. So New South Wales finished with 248 and trailed by 76, but it could have been much worse. The Daily Telegraph newspaper summarised the innings as... The New South Wales batsmen failed badly, and all were out for 248, of which D.J. Bradman contributed 131. The papers were still getting his middle initial wrong. Queensland batted again and set New South Wales a very improbable 399 for victory. Newspapers in Brisbane and Sydney predicted a Queensland win. Indeed, the Brisbane Courier was already referring to one of the batting performances of the Queensland side as match-winning. And you can hardly blame them. Winning cricket games when you've got to chase 400 in the final innings is fiendishly difficult. But they were wrong. 
And on Friday the 2nd of November, the Courier's cricket headline read, Bradman's double, century in each innings, New South Wales wins. That's right, Bradman had finished with 133 not out, and along with 96 from the captain Alan Kipax, had guided New South Wales to a stunning win. This was quite a moment. Most batsmen go through their entire careers, never scoring a century in each innings of a match. Bradman had done it aged only 20. And the manner of the two innings was significant as well. In the first innings, the only one really to make an impression on the Queenslanders, and in the second, helping the state along to a famous victory. In 60,000 first-class matches played over a quarter of a millennium, there'd only been 80 bigger successful chases than this one. The Brisbane Courier said that Bradman rather relished the short stuff on the wicket and drove it to the pickets. Bradman looked all over a real match winner. In Sydney, the Telegraph was even more effusive. Young Bradman, making a bold bid for test match honours, played grandly. Following his century in the first innings, he attacked all the bowlers with the utmost disdain and with a choice variety of square cuts, hard drives and artistic leg play. Elsewhere it added, Until yesterday, the youthful D. Bradman of New South Wales was merely an outside possibility in a test match sense. His double century in Brisbane brings him well into the calculations of unofficial selectors. Interestingly, to modernise, back in the Brisbane Courier, they also pointed out an unorthodoxy in Bradman's style. And I think if you listen to this passage and squint your eyes, maybe you can imagine it being applied to Steve Smith. A peculiar straight drive, strategically placed between the bowler and mid-on, was a prolific scorer. It was executed with remarkable ease, but in rather unorthodox fashion, with a shoulder action. And what about Bradman himself? How did he feel about this life-changing match? Did he devote an entire chapter to it in his book? Maybe he could have called it doubling up for success or double-triple. Well, not quite. This is Bradman's entire description of that game. A week later, playing for New South Wales against Queensland, I scored 131 in the first innings and 133 not out in the second. So, one game down, two to go. Bradman's star was on the rise, but he was about to face his biggest challenge yet. The first time that he'd ever play England in a game of cricket. After the break, I'll tell you how he went. New South Wales versus England on the Sydney cricket ground. This was no warm-up game. In those days, when the States played England, it was highly competitive. Both sides wanted to win, not like the modern glorified net sessions that these games have become. And this can be seen in the crowds. Back in those days, because they had the rest day on a Sunday, you only actually had one non-working day when cricket was played, the Saturday. And on the Saturday in this match, 43,117 turned up. At the time, the highest ever SCG crowd outside of a test match. So Bradman taking on England for the first time, well, it wasn't just a normal England side. A lot of people would say that the England side of 1928-29 was their greatest ever. And among an absolute galaxy of stars, it was going to be Walter Hammond who would set the summer alight. He ended up scoring 905 runs in the test matches at an average of 113 that summer. And it remains to this day the most runs ever scored in an Australian summer. Although you may remember that Marnus Labuschagne almost beat it with 896 runs in 2019-20. Now news of Bradman's twin centuries against Queensland had clearly not reached Hammond. In his autobiography, he described Bradman as a slim, shortish boy with a grim, nervous face whom I had never seen before and whose name was unfamiliar to me. He looked about 19 and not very formidable. England batted first, and Bradman might have begun to challenge that impression by running Hammond out with a searing throw from mid-off, but 
Hammond was on 225 at the time, having led a humiliating destruction of the New South Wales bowlers. England eventually declared on a mammoth 7 for 743. This was a bitter pill to swallow for Australia's most successful state. And worse came straight away, as in reply, New South Wales slumped to 3 for 38. Bradman then came out to bat, against the best bowling attack he had ever faced. It featured a young Harold Larwood who'd make his fame four years later in the Bodyline series, one of England's greatest and fastest bowlers ever. But the others weren't too shabby either. Picking on a couple, medium-paced Morris Tate, in his first-class career, took 2,784 wickets at an astonishing average of 18.2. And leg spinner Titch Freeman outdid him. He took 3,776 wickets in his career at an average of 18.4. Initially, Bradman was batting again with captain Alan Kippax. And again, they produced a partnership, putting on 90 before Kippax was out for 64. Veteran Charlie Calloway then joined Bradman, and together they brought New South Wales a modicum of respectability. Calloway was eventually to top score with 93 not out. Bradman got to 87 and then was unluckily bowled by Freeman. In the Sydney Morning Herald, they said, attempting to glance, he chopped the ball onto his foot and it cannoned into the stumps. So New South Wales finished with 349, leaving them a massive 385 runs behind. It could have been much worse, though. Bradman, Kippax and Kellaway had salvaged some pride for the state, and the papers were once again impressed with Bradman. And the Sydney sportsman, with a massive front-page headline, wrote, New South Wales replies to England in a whisper. Boy, Bradman, brilliant. He and Kellaway save side from debacle. Home team face big defeat. And later, under a photo of Bradman, they wrote, The sort we need. Don Bradman, the barrel boy, not content with making 200s in Brisbane against Queensland, followed up the triumph with a capital 87 against England yesterday. The Telegraph was satisfied by the fight shown. The headline reading, Home team fights a tenacious uphill battle. Bradman demonstrates splendid pluck. And in the article, it was a notable innings which again indicated his tremendous possibilities. It is delightful to see a lad who can play such a splendid knock when runs are so badly needed. Bradman was even starting to gain some attention in England. Plum Warner, who was a legendary England captain and would actually be the manager of England in the Bodyline series in four years to come, writing in the Morning Post, said, Probably Bradman's 87 gave the most satisfaction to New South Wales. Following on his double century against Queensland, he must be a strong candidate for playing the tests. So with such a massive lead these days, the touring side would be just as likely to bat again for the practice. But that was not the done thing back then. England wanted the win and would have expected the win. This time, the home team made a little bit of a better start. But when Bradman came out to bat at 3 for 115, the game was in the balance. Indeed, the smart money would still have been on an England win. Well, not only did New South Wales not lose, they didn't lose another wicket because Bradman and Kippax once again put on a partnership. Kippax finished with 136 not out and Bradman finished with 132 not out and New South Wales escaped with an honourable draw. And as far as the Australian public and press were concerned, the dam had burst. 87 in the first innings following on from his twin centuries against Queensland. Well, that was great. But now an undefeated sparkling century against the English to save the state's pride was something else. Cautious optimism gave way to full-blown adulation. The Daily Telegraph, in huge font for the day, proclaimed, Bradman should play in first test match. Gates of fame are now open to him. Bowral lad has century habit well-developed. Romance of cricket field. 
And the article by the legendary cricket journalist A.G. Johnny Moyes began, Three years ago, there came to Sydney rumours of a Bowerall lad who defied all the efforts of his colleagues to shift him. And Moyes then described how Bradman had been invited to Sydney for a trial and said, It is safe to say that those who witnessed the country lad batting at the nets with braces holding up his trousers would hardly recognise the boy who yesterday made a century against England. So greatly has he advanced in skill. And in the Sydney Morning Herald... Bradman was faster than his captain, perhaps more daring in his drives. He has previously shown that he is partial to slow bowlers, but yesterday he showed a remarkable advance even on the previous day. And from never having heard of Bradman, Hammond had had the opportunity to see the youngster score 219 runs in the match and was suitably impressed. Young Bradman looked as if he could stay forever. None of our bowlers could do any more than feed him runs that day. And Bradman, in his inimitable style, recorded the match as follows in his autobiography. I scored 87 in the first innings and 132 not out in the second. So if Bradman himself was very restrained, one of his biographers, Irving Rosenwater, summed up the innings as this. It was a landmark in his career. Runs impressively and quickly scored against the most important team he'd so far encountered and against an attack keyed up to concert pitch. But there were still some yet to be convinced about Bradman's spot in the test side, including... Bill Ponsford, the number one batsman that Australia had at the time, someone who was definitely going to be in the first test team. He had a column in the Sun newspaper, and he wrote an article in which the headline was, Test Tip, Ponsford Picks a Team, Omits Bradman. He did write in the midst of the column, Bradman's figures for his first year in big cricket are so fine that he is sure to be in the reckoning. Well, Bradman had one more match. He was chosen to play in the Australian eleven against England on the Sydney cricket ground, and it was going to be a final selection trial for those on the fringes of the team. This match would see Bradman introduced to a couple of more famous English bowlers. Farmer White, as he was known, who was a left-arm orthodox bowler who took 2,355 wickets in his career at an average of just 18.6, and George Geary, a fast-medium bowler, who took 2,063 wickets at an average of 20.0. Australia batted first, and when Bradman came in at number five, they were three for 91, and the wickets kept on tumbling, with Harold Larwood and Morris Tate leading the charge, and eventually the Australian side was all out for a very disappointing 231. As for Bradman, well, he played an uncharacteristic innings, focusing almost solely on defence. It was as though this fiercely determined young man had decided that on this of all days, England would not be able to get him out. And they weren't able to. Bradman finished as top scorer, 58 not out. It was to be the slowest half century of his entire career. Writing in the Telegraph under the headline, Splendid Innings by Bradman, cricket journalist and former test cricketer Arthur Maley said, Again, Don Bradman rose to the occasion. His 58 not out, made with his back to the wall, must enhance his chance of selection for the first test. The big day of selection was drawing near. In fact, it would come before Bradman got to bat a second time in the match. In the second innings, he only actually made 18. But at the time when the selectors sat down to choose the side, Bradman had scored 560 runs at an average of 140 that season. So it shouldn't have even been close. But the selectors were renowned for favouring veterans over youngsters. On the 19th of November 1928, they sat down to pick the side. The announcement was due at 9pm, but 9pm came and went, and the assembled media were left waiting. Minutes dragged by. The next day's front page of the Sydney Sportsman described the scene as 
The Big Four, meaning the selectors, met at the Hotel Carlton at 8pm, and at times the proceedings were of a lively character. In the lounge below, scores of prominent players, officials and enthusiasts sat discussing the prospects of their own particular pets. Well, finally, getting on towards midnight, the team had been chosen. The selectors summoned in the media, told them the team, and the results were broadcast on the wireless up and down the country. Here's how Bradman described what must have been the biggest night of his life to date. On the night in question, the names of the chosen were to be broadcast. There was some delay, so I retired to bed. Bud had not gone to sleep when a nearby wireless gave out the names. They were in alphabetical order, and therefore mine was first on the list. So this ambition had been achieved. Just to clarify, the nearby wireless Bradman referred to wasn't his. Bradman had told his landlady that he was off to bed, and he'd find out the team in the morning papers. But it just so happened that the bedroom next to his had a radio on so loud that he could hear it through the wall, and that's how he heard that he was in the side. Bradman might have been pretty calm about achieving his ultimate ambition, but Australia was not. It had been exactly four weeks since his failure in the second innings of Australia versus the rest. In that time, the boy from Barrel, as he was now already being dubbed, had shot to national fame. The next day's papers gave huge coverage to the announcement of the team. Inclusion of Bradman will find public favour, was the headline. And Johnny Moyes in the Telegraph wrote, Bradman's selection will be popular. He is a lad with a great future, and it is splendid to see that the selectors realise this. In the Sydney Evening News, former Australian superstar Charlie McCartney wrote that the choice of Bradman was the most popular one in New South Wales, and he has thoroughly earned the honour. My congratulations to this young player, who has so worthily won his place. The advocate in Melbourne, with quite flowery language, said... Bradman is the star of the season, a boy in years. He has more grit than some of his confrères who have amassed records in the past under circumstances that entailed little anxiety concerning the ultimate success of the team. That's 1928 speak for, he scores his runs when it matters. On the same day as the team was announced, another glimpse into Bradman's rising fame was revealed in the papers, as it was shown that the previous day, Bradman's blazer, cap and trousers had been stolen from his locker in the Sydney Cricket Ground dressing room. Irving Rosenwater, in his biography of Bradman, said that Bradman's stature in Australian cricket can readily be gauged from this incident. He added, No other player in the match had anything stolen. The thief's eyes were on Bradman alone. And at around about this time, Percy Fender, English cricketer and journalist, had arrived in Australia to cover the tour. And a few days later, four days before the first test was due, he wrote in his first article... I noticed since my arrival here that one of your old war cries has changed. Not once, when in Sydney, was I asked, Have you seen our harbour? But several times the question was put to me, Have you seen our Bradman? So there you have it, quite an extraordinary rise. Bradman, yet to play a test match in the space of four weeks in three matches, has gone to a national superstar. And of course, his fame would only grow. So, the first test was about to start. As I said, the first ever to be played in Brisbane and a match that was being anticipated up and down the length of Queensland and the country. Bradman had scored a century on his first grade debut. He'd scored a century on his debut for New South Wales. What was in store for him in this first test? As he joined the team on the northbound train from Sydney, someone yelled out, A double century for your first test now! None of that, replied the appropriately modest young man, but you can depend on me doing my best. And that's where we'll leave him, about to head off on another train journey. And what occurred in that first test match and throughout the entire remarkable summer of 1928-29 is a story for another day. 
I hope you enjoyed this mini podcast history edition of Cricket Unfiltered. Menes and I are continuing to do our normal weekly episodes during the coronavirus lockdown. In addition, stay tuned for some feature interviews that Menes is doing with cricket players, and I'll be doing some more mini history pods. If you want to get in touch with me, I can be contacted on Twitter at the underscore summer underscore game, and the podcast is on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok as Oz Cricket Pod. That's AUS Cricket Pod. I'm Paul Dennett, and I'll speak to you soon. Sports Social Podcast Network.